Welcome to Hospitality Meets with me, Phil Street, where we take a light-hearted look into the stories and individuals that make up the wonderful world of hospitality. Today's guest is TV chef Cyrus Toddywalla OBE, chef proprietor, author and phenomenal hospitality champion. Coming up on today's show, Cyrus reveals a cutting-edge appraisal system from the 80s. Okay, I don't like you this, I don't like this, I don't like that, I don't like that, I like this, I like this. Sign, go. Phil and Cyrus do a live trade. If you transfer £7,500 into my bank account, that car is yours. And Cyrus puts his friendship with Tony Singh at risk. So we had a whale of a time, we had a ball. Not that I understand what Tony says really half the time. All that and so much more as Cyrus takes us through just some of the stories that have made up a wonderful career so far. Don't forget to hit subscribe and give us a like and a share. Let's share the stories. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to the next edition of Hospitality Meets with me, your host, Phil Street. And today I'm delighted to welcome to the show somebody who's uh, been in this industry for a fair few years. I'll let him talk us through that. Chef, restaurateur, multiple author, OBE. Welcome to the show, Cyrus Toddywalla. Good morning, sir. How are you doing today? I am very good. Thank you very much. And thanks for allowing me to eat my breakfast too. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. For those uh, tuning in, we did have a, a, a an earlier time scheduled to do this, but um, breakfast is the most important meal of the day, so that has to take precedence. Definitely for me. Great. Well, maybe you could kick things off by giving us a, a run through of who you are and what you're currently doing. Although, obviously, let's that comes with a caveat at the moment with regards to the wonderful virus that's in our lives. But um, yeah, who are you? What do you do? So, as you explained, Cyrus Toriwala and uh, chef restauranter, perhaps, of course, uh, restaurant along with my wife, Pervin. Multiple author, I don't know. Yes, seven books. Yeah, you could call it multiple. I'm sure of that. But mostly a chef by profession. Yeah. And this would be my 44th year in the kitchen, I think. Wow. That's a long time cooking. When you start off with six hair on your beard and five hair sprouting under your temple, <laughs> now when you got to sometimes shave twice a day, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's been quite a journey. I know those days when you want to extend those five hair and pull them down and make it look like you're really sprouting a beard or something. <laughs> but yes, uh, it's been a it's been a fabulous, eventful journey, and I don't think when people ask me what else could you have done, I I could have done many things, but I think this has been probably the most. Uh, not just the challenging, but the most entertaining industry one could ever find himself in. Yeah. Well, I, I take us all the way back to the, the very beginning. How did you get into this industry in the first place? Well, let's put it this way. I was very poor at academics. They're not my forte at all. Yeah. I mean, brushing through would be more like my kind of story. I did start off life as a very highly asthmatic, young child who really suffered a lot and right. due to that I mean I would miss a lot of school a lot of school means a lot of school because you woke up in the morning and you just couldn't breathe or you couldn't uh, do anything and in those days there were no inhalers or anything like that it was right. medication or ayurvedic or you know remedies that were handed down from father to son things like that mm. but over and above that, it was always hunched over and I almost was like a question mark in shape. You know, I couldn't even stand straight so that I could not put pressure on my lungs. 
and wow. with that with that as i grew up slightly i mean i had to spend a lot of time at home sometimes what happens is that as any young child would you wake up in the morning feeling absolutely miserable and uh, sick yeah and then mental clock starts to churn mom says okay no going to school today and come 9 o'clock you mentally hear the school bell going tang 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 and you start feeling better again right because you are at home now yeah and uh, i would be i mean quite a handful for mom more often than not and then she would drag me into the kitchen so i ended up helping her making chapatis cutting things for her peeling chopping you know preparing the meal for the day and that's perhaps where i learned the most of my things standing next to mom yeah i still give her credit for teaching me how to chop onions right from a very tiny young age and maybe that developed into a love for cooking but then things progressed i was sent off to stay with my uncle in the village in rajasthan where the climate was different to bombay in the hope that the dry desert kind of climate might do better for me it did work to a degree but then education was a problem so i had to come back to bombay and the whole asthma effect became worse again okay after a couple of years i was put into a boarding school that was away from bombay on a hill station with very clean pure hair that station is called devlali and that is where the word doolali comes from really the british had their mental hospital there <laughs> and uh, well, there you go we got that lesson as well yeah doolali doolali comes from because yeah. it's devlali and uh, they had a mental hospital there they also had asylums there they had a chest hospital there tb hospital there you know things like that yeah and it was a big army camp it still is india's main school of artillery and uh, so there of course uh, i spent a few years and the asthma gradually gradually as i grew up older started to disappear when i came back to bombay to do my college studies i fared very i would say i fared not well at all in my a levels okay i was one of the last students in india in the last batch that did uh, a levels from cambridge university and uh, so i didn't fare very well i did well only because i did well in english language and english literature so i brushed through the exams otherwise you had to repeat your a levels the next year mm. and then what does one do i loved agriculture i loved farming i loved things like that and uh, maybe i thought i'll dabble in that and then uh, not deciding very well my sister's friend said why don't you just come and have a look at my college you know we are doing catering and this is what we are doing we are cooking and doing other things and i went there had a look one day and i said wow i like this stuff because for once i don't have to only use my brains but the thing was that uh, catering and hospitality education in india involves 25 subjects okay not like here where you can just specialize right we have to do whole shindig before you can and there is no specialization at that time you would just had to do the entire syllabus all through those years Yeah. Anyway, I enjoyed myself. I did much better there than I ever did in school. And um I did quite well in cooking and I was selected by a selection panel from the Taj group of hotels and they gave me a job at the Taj Mahal hotel in Bombay and that's how the career began. Would you say at that point in time you were feeling a connection to it or had that yet to hit you? Well, the connection was there because I enjoyed cooking, but uh nothing had been drummed into you about any career because that was not what was taught to us it was never a career you never knew where you would go what you would aspire to where you would reach 
what heights you would go to till you got into the job and even then it was not very clear at all you just got into it because and you were very thankful you had a job you were great delighted i have a job and then i have a job at the taj mahal hotel what better could i ask for yeah but it was a hard slog hard slog i mean those days were really really hard and uh, i worked my way up right from the kitchen but prior to that during uh, the holidays we had to complete a certain number of months working in the hotel and catering industry otherwise you couldn't get your qualification unless you completed 16 months or 18 months of on job training and at that time i did most of my work was bussing tables right okay lifting up trays clearing tables because you are from the college the staff make good use of you they would make you run around and in one of the busiest restaurants ever at the taj the coffee shop and yeah so those were back breaking uh, labor days and you got little bit of money that allowed you to watch a couple of movies and come home and go back but that's how it all began and then the kitchen career began from there on and uh, it went on i mean there were tough days for us we still were very much uh, an old fashioned kitchen brigade where the moment the boss came next to you you shook your shook in your pants and you shivered all the way down your spine <laughs> <laughs> every now and again you got a verbal abuse or you got a little whack behind your head yeah for doing something wrong and one of our older chefs used to actually jab the knee into your back you know he oof and i Yes, it was. I mean, I remember one day I was concussing lots of tomatoes, and when you say lots of tomatoes in a big five-star hotel, you're looking at a forty-kilo batch of large tomatoes that launch. Then you got to peel them. Then you got to cut them. You got to pulp them. Then you chop the flesh, and then you strain the seeds out. And water dribbled from my chopping board. The juice dribbled from my chopping board along the table and onto the floor, and I had not seen it because it was a big chopping board. and I was working away suddenly this knee hit my back you know and i was jammed against the table and i looked up and i said he says what's all this water doing on the floor you're working like a pig and then i got a little whack on the head as well with that so just for good measure yeah it was like that but uh, it taught you so many things the discipline was really really strict wastage was always of course had to be controlled yeah. i give you a small story three of us one day were playing a little mischief in the kitchen as we do and i was rather just a bit over the top mischievous sometimes right <laughs> i was always pulling people's legs or getting myself in situations i found difficult to get out of sometimes yeah and they've got very upset with the three of us and said okay go up to the butchery there's 300 kilos of prawns clean them so 300 kilos of prawns massive huge basket two baskets and you know what happens when you start cleaning prawns we used to call them in the taj prawny fingers your fingers your skin starts to curl up yeah with wetness and you know the sting gets through your hair into your body into your clothes into everything and um we started cleaning and um we thought we were clever so halfway through we picked up a whole big batch of the prawns chucked them in the bin and started cleaning on top of them again with all the shells piled on top and one bushel got empty the old man came up and he says oh you guys have worked real fast hey, that's amazing he says so he put his hand into the bin all the way down he lifted all the shells and he flung them on the floor and in the middle of that out came all these 5 10 kilos of prawns right now you can imagine what happened after that 
Yeah, more knees to the back and uh, more. Oh, oh, yes. He kicked the whole dustbin on the floor. He made us sweep everything, pick up every single prawn from that, get back to cleaning. And we were punished to do that job for a whole week after that. Right. But then I suppose it, it's pretty, it's an, it's an intense punishment, I guess. But, you know, it teaches you not to do that again, right? Yeah, 100%. It teaches us not to do that again. It makes you work faster. It teaches you some tricks about prawn cleaning. But when you're looking, ugh, I can't even imagine going back to those days. Today, you can buy prawns. You can buy shell prawns, peel, deworm, IQF, yep. whatever you want. But those days in India, it was all down to manpower. Or it was all manpower. Yeah. Yeah. So like that, I mean, there are lots of stories. I mean, I remember one day when you were working, I was working in the soup section because you always started off in the kitchen through the the soup to the the what the antramethier from the antramethier you moved up one thing you went to the roast section and the saucier section or you worked in the fish section so you went up the fish after fish the last one you went to was the saucier and uh, that was a when when you were put in the saucier you knew you had actually achieved a few things in that kitchen so once when working in the soup i mean in those days the Taj had a banqueting facility of something like over 2,000 people if you take all the rooms put together. And we used to have huge banquets, 500, 600, 800,000, 1,200, 1,500, things like that. Wow, yeah. We had creme de epinard, I still remember very clearly, spinach soup. We had prepared three large marmites of that soup. And just before everything was ready, the chef would come you had to present him with a whole pile of spoons and he would taste every single marmite or everything that was in there. And we had slightly burnt the roux in the spinach soup. Okay. So when the soup was cooking, because we didn't pay attention, at the bottom, it has slightly got burnt. And we doctored it a bit and thought, great, it's looking, tasting good now. Put it out there. This man came in. Every other soup was okay. He tasted the spinach soup. And wow. He picked up and he says, you, you expect me to taste that and approve that? He slopped the whole marmite down onto the kitchen floor. Same thing like it happened with my our prawns. Yeah. We had to mop the entire floor. We had three hours for the party to start. We had to make soup again and get it ready in time for the party, approved by the man, and make sure that the soup was of the highest quality that went to the customer. Yeah. So... Yeah, there were, there were lots of things like that. And it really taught you about quality, why the Taj was what it was and why it was considered the number one hotel in India and one of the finest in the world was because of these standards. And I remember very clearly, today we don't pay much attention, but when we had the stewarding department and the stewarding department, based on what my daily requirement was, and if I told them I have X, Y, Z and I'm expecting so many a la carte orders, according to that, Every silver platter was polished and handed out to me, wrapped in a tablecloth, handled only by gloves. Yeah. It was that standard. And when we put the plate onto the pass, God forbid, if the chef or the manager saw a water spot on it, or if they saw a stain on it, or if they saw that the EPNS had uh, been, uh, you know, eroded, you got yourself into a hell of a lot of mess. Yeah. Tray to the back of the head. No, the platter could come flying at you, you see? Yeah. It, it could be as serious as that. And uh, so... Very different days now. Very different. Very different days now, yes. Very different days. I mean, uh, and it, when it was appraisal time, 
I still remember very clearly my first appraisal. The boss filled the whole form up, told me just sign and get out of my office. <laughs> and uh, that was it. That was my appraisal. One and a half minutes it took. He just said, right. oh, okay, I don't like you this. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't like that. I like this. I like this. Sign. Go. That's it. Next. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, I, he had a brigade of 200, you know, overall. So, there's a lot of, yeah. a lot of people there between all the five, six restaurants and the main kitchen and everything else. It was a big brigade. In an already very busy job. In an already imagine. very busy job, yeah. Yeah. So you you started to climb the ranks, didn't you, at, uh, at Taj? So I was getting my... I was coming into the attention of some of the other senior people in the hotel, but not in the eyes of my executive chef. Right. Somehow he just simply did not like me or did not think that I was suitable enough. and that Too I, much the joker. <laughs> too, too much mischief, I would imagine. Yeah. <laughs> and then he took pride in actually shuffling me around and that actually did me a huge favor. Right. Because if the bakery needed uh, an additional hand, you go up there. If the patisserie needed hand, you get there. If the Chinese needed hand, you go down there. So wherever I was shunted, it gave me the opportunity to learn more and more and more. And that I have to thank him for. Yeah. Because otherwise, like many other chefs, I would have been down in one section alone and I would have only mastered that. I would never have learned so many other things that have helped me all through my career today. And I can pick things from here and there. And then uh, somewhere around 1980, when uh, some of the senior managers approached him and said, this Charlie needs to go for training abroad. And I was sent to Switzerland. Okay. And uh, in 1980, I was sent to the Intercontinental Hotel in Switzerland, where, of course, I worked mostly in the patisserie. But I also worked in the saucier and I also worked in the butchery. So, and of course, entremetier. So I got a different experience altogether. And that honed up our classical skills because most of us were more classically skilled. The Indian section at that time was dominated by only a few Indian cooks working there. Okay. So that gave you a complete different perspective on how another kitchen works. And coming back, I was then given uh, charge of a small kitchen but the most prestigious kitchen in the hotel that was the looking after of a club called the chambers club now the chambers club is made up only of mds ceos and chairman of companies who are invited by the chairman of Taj to become members otherwise no other person can just apply for membership so very exclusive uh, club and uh, we had very tiny function rooms in there, mostly no more than seating 12 to 15 people. And that's where they had all their top meetings. So the chairman of Siemens or Herxt Pharmaceuticals or Bayer or whoever was there, you know, all those big daddies would hold their meetings. And after the morning meetings, we would then uh, provide lunch for these people. And uh, it was always a very high-ended menu. The food was of a very high quality, very high standard. And of course, you catered to people who were very widely globally traveled. So your standard had to be as good as they would expect. Yeah. So the Chambers was a huge experience. And uh, we had to make tabla dot menus every single day, which was great. And then we also had a weekly menu. But then every guest would come in and also want their own menu. So you'd end up cooking special menus for different people. 
But just before I went to Chambers, I was put with a chef. We were looking after the head office of the Tata group. Tata is the big family that owns Jaguar, Land Rover, Cora Steel, ah, okay. Tata yeah, yeah. Steel. And uh, they also have more business in uh, Britain. They do a very big, they are the biggest salt producers, uh, rock salt producers in Britain called Tata Salt. And so Tata owned uh, Taj Mahal Hotel group as well. And I was put in the head office to look after the chairman and the directors, which is the Mr. J.R.D. Tata himself and his group of directors of all the various Tata companies. And that gave you another massive experience because you are dealing constantly with uh, very high-powered people. And entertainment in Tata House or Bombay House, as it was called, was of a very high level. I mean, give you an example. Um, We catered for some big daddies and one of them one day not knowing Uh, A new room was created. Now, this just talks a little bit about the man who was the chairman of the group, India's ever first ever pilot, the person who founded Air India and all the Indian airlines, and an amazing gentleman, my hero, actually, in a sense. And uh, a new old room was just renovated for a director's uh, entertaining room for any dignitary or any big person who came for a meeting. And this room was made ready. And another gentleman who looked after all of that came and asked uh, my colleague and myself, can you just come and check the room before I call Jay, he used to be called J.R.D. Tata, to inspect the room and just see if everything's okay because you know how sharp he is, he'll pick something up. And we went to the room. Now, if a chairman of another company asks you, you naturally don't look at it that intently. You look, say, everything really fantastic, sir. It's really beautiful. We had a little buzz around and we stood on the side and he went and called the big boss. The big boss walked into the room and said, I cannot enter in his room. Look at the crack on that wall there. And a fine crack had emerged on the plaster, which none of us saw. Okay. Right. Now, the person he was entertaining was the dreaded Mr. Ceausescu of Romania in those days. I don't know if you know the word. He was one of the most dreaded of dictators of Romania. Okay. And um, we were doing uh, his dinner one. So it was people like that. Ceausescu had contracted Tata to build their hydroelectric project in Romania at the time. And like that, lots of big people came there. So that gave me a lot of experience. And then, of course, I was in Chambers. And Chambers helped you to then hone those skills and realize how much effort it is to serve even six people or eight people when you have a five-course dinner going course by course, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so that that progressed, and um, eighty that was eighty two, eighty three, and uh, eighty nineteen eighty two. I, along with a whole group of chefs, decided to leave the Taj, and to walk away from the company and join a rival group known as the Welcome Group or the Indian Tobacco Company owned this group. And they wanted skilled chefs to take over some of their new hotels that they had expanded into. Right. And I was one of those that they wanted me to take over a brand new hotel that they had opened in Bangalore. But as soon as I resigned, all hell broke loose. And uh, I got all sorts of people trying to convince me from the senior management that you cannot leave, let the others go, but you cannot go. And here I'm thinking, I'm not even getting a promotion. I'm remaining a commie still. I'm handling my own kitchen as a commie. And there are people that the chef put under me, which were sous chefs and chef the parties and expected me to control a team 
of people senior to me. So I was getting quite frustrated at the time that I was being mistreated. So you were still a commie, but you were you were leading. I was leading sous chef. I was leading a team with sous chefs and chef the parties in it. Yeah. No, this is makes how, total sense. Oh yeah, this is how nasty it was for me. But right. um, and I said no, I'm leaving. But eventually, they sent a very dear friend of mine, who's now sadly dead and gone, who had this control over me or a little hold over me because we were very very close, and uh, we worked together. We were pretty close. And uh, he flew home, so I was about to fly out to Bangalore. He was flown down from Delhi, came home and said, "Cyrus, don't go." And they put me on a flight to Goa. And uh, suddenly, I found myself in Goa, lost completely, not knowing. I, I should actually send you that story because our general manager eventually wrote a story called "Being Cyrus." You will find it very interesting. That story. Okay. Yeah. I'll send it by email. You'll find it interesting. And I found myself in Goa, and all of a sudden. I jumped four scales on the ladder, and I was made a sous chef right. from a commie. So I jumped all the three other posts in between, and I was up there from commie to sous chef. And suddenly, I became a chef manager, and that is where my big education of actually dealing with a wide, a larger crew, and working with a lot more people who are under your command, so to speak. But more so, colleagues. That's where the learning curve began. Yeah, that you are in a place called Goa. Everybody says great things about Goa, but you are in the back of beyond nowhere. The storekeeper didn't know what noodles was when I asked him for a special kind of noodles. You know, it was things like that. It was just <laughs> completely unbelievable. So you are coming yeah. from a city where you just walk into the store and say, "Can I have some Stilton?" And the guy will dig out some Stilton for you, or you know. You wanted caviar for one of the big boys' parties, or you wanted a special, you know, foie gras, or things like that. You got it. Then you come to Goa, and you are absolutely straight away into rural, rustic India. Right. And that was a massive challenge. What happened there was a sales and marketing director, who actually owns the Chutney Mary Group. You know, the Veera Swami, the Chutney Mary Group. Yeah. Yeah, so she, I mean, she was a sales and marketing director, very desperate to start pumping Goa and pushing it and making it successful. And she would make promises to some VVIPs and say, "You go to Goa, Cyrus is there. You know, in Goa, when you order fresh coconut water, we pluck it off the tree and sell it to you." And this guy walked up to one day. He was a count from Italy. I remember his name, Count Sella. He says, "Mr. Toriwala," I said, "Yes." He's saying, Camilla Punjabi told me that if I order tender coconut, you will send someone to climb the tree and pluck the coconut for me. I said, really? In my mind, I said, really? <laughs> and he said, yes. And I want to see this man plucking the coconut. I said, oh boy, God, what do I do now? So we had a ladder. We put a ladder against one of the smaller trees because our boys could not scale trees. They were not trained for scaling a coconut tree which grows straight up 50 meters. You know? Yeah. And I got the guy to climb a ladder. I said, "You just pluck the biggest coconut you can see on the tree. Pluck the coconut, brought it back, took it to the kitchen, brought one out of the fridge, cleaned it nicely, and served it to him." And he says, "Wow, this is amazing! Imagine how cool it is inside." I said, "Yes, sir. On the tree, the coconut's always cool. <laughs> Actually, not so. When you pluck a coconut from the tree, it's <laughs> it's quite warm inside, you know." <laughs> And realized later that I had to keep my motorcycle parked behind the kitchen because suddenly this group would walk in. Can you make us some burid? I said burid. Oh, but I don't have the right kind of fish. No, no, don't worry. We'll come back in three hours. 
and I would take my bike, shoot off to the fish market, pick up fish for a burid or a buya bears or whatever they wanted, and then prepare the food for them. And this is what Goa was. And they enjoyed it because they got this luxury of demanding and the food on demand, not realizing that at the back in that kitchen, pandemonium and mayhem broke loose. <laughs> they were vital to the hotel's uh, success, you see. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I can, I, I, I could write a massive book, sir. Your 40 minutes will never be sufficient for me. But Please do. Please write a book. I'd, um, it, it, it's, it's one of the things that I'd, I think that, especially for hospitality geeks, yeah. you know, people would love to learn and read about journeys and stories of uh, of yeah. how people get it's just the same as uh, reading a sports biography or yeah. you know biography of a politician you like or 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 whatever i have to actually mutter it out into something yeah i'm going to sit and type i started it many times it's never worked but it was things like this and from there goa became great then i took over the bigger hotel in goa the fort Aguada beach resort then i became corporate executive chef one of those years, we in 1983, I remember very clearly, we hosted the Commonwealth Summit in India. Right. Goa was the Commonwealth Retreat. So they had only three days of meetings and uh, three days of enjoyment. And uh, this is interesting, I'll tell you. But 1983, January, I found myself at the Park Lane Hilton. Okay. Under the guidance of Chef Oswald Meyer. And Oswald Meyer, because of the Hilton at that time being one of London's premier hotels and catering for all the biggest dignitaries in the world and big conferences being held over there, yeah. he knew about all the people that were coming for our summit. And my idea was to get to know as much as possible from him before I came back to Goa in preparation for the big summit. Yeah. Anyway, so Hilton aside and came to Goa, it was a nightmare. Because at that time, the if you remember, it was the height of the Tamil rebels in Sri Lanka. Okay. Their Prime Minister Jayavardhane was a big target. And being a Commonwealth uh, member, he was also invited to attend the Commonwealth Summit in Goa. So the Indian Army, the Indian Army, Navy, Air Force were on high alert because of, anyway, 48 heads of Commonwealth state inside your hotel at any given time is risk enough anyway. Yeah. Is big enough anyway. On top of that, you know, you have the added added disadvantage of some people being targets of uh, mercenaries and whatever else. But <clears throat> I mean, all those hassles aside, I'll give you one or two stories which will really be interesting for the people. So the big hotel, on the top of the hotel, 18 new bungalows were created for the senior members of the Commonwealth. And right at the top, 520-518-519-517-516. So 517-518, Indira Gandhi, Margaret Thatcher. 519 was uh, Pierre Trudeau. 520 was Rampal, the chairman of the Commonwealth. And others, of course, around. Yeah. And uh, what happened was they built a helipad at the hotel. So these people did not have to travel by coach. The coach journey from the airport to the hotel is about two hours. Right. And so they said, we'll have to lift them. The baggage will come by coach. Their ADCs have already arrived a day before to prepare for all the premiers coming in to set up their sections, etc. All the rooms were completely vetted, checked by the Indian security, everything else. And so one by one, they flew in. And we got information, this one's come and that one has come and that one has come. And then we got information that Pierre Trudeau had arrived. Sorry, Pierre Trudeau had not yet arrived. 
sorry. Yeah. P.A. Trudeau arrives at the airport in, of course, the national carrier, and he refuses to go by helicopter. He tells the security people, listen, he says, I can travel by helicopter in Canada anytime I want, but I want to go by bus. I want to experience going by bus. He was that kind of a character, I believe. Yeah. And he said, sir, but there is no security. There is no arrangement. He said, I don't care. Who's going to know me in Goa? I'll jump onto the bus. And he jumped onto one of the buses where all the luggage was coming in. And Pierre Trudeau arrived two and a half hours later with the luggage. As soon as he reached the lobby, they whisked him up in the, you know, the golf cart and shoot, shot him straight away to his room. His room overlooked a 10-kilometer stretch of beach, okay? Pristine. All the beaches were cleared up because it was all under a security zone. Trudeau saw that. He got into his shorts and T-shirt and bang, he ran down the slope towards the beach. Now, when any premier is moving, security is informed by walkie-talkie that somebody is coming <laughs> to be prepared. He didn't tell anyone. He just dashed out of the room. The security guys nabbed him at the bottom of the hill and chucked him into a cell. And they locked him up because they had no information. Now, this is the Prime Minister of Canada running down the slope. Two Jawans, Jawans means soldiers of Indian Border Security Force, the toughest guys in the world there. They are like the Green Berets or the SEALs, you know. Yeah. They are that really trained. They nabbed him. He said, I'm Trudeau. He said, I don't know any Trudeau, Frudo, nothing. We don't understand. They threw him in the cell and they locked the cell up. <laughs> and in the hotel in the meantime, Mrs. Gandhi had called for a meeting and there was panic in the hotel because they could not find Trudeau. And here's this soldier trying to get in touch with his commanding officer to say that we have caught a mercenary and we have locked him up. He looks like a troublesome character because he is arguing and fighting and, you know, but no fighting, no arguing. Trudeau sat very peacefully enjoying himself on that little stool inside the little hole, really feeling thrilled with himself that he had been nabbed by Indian soldiers and chucked yeah, well, into a cell. He was at the moment. An experience that you can never um, uh, sort of repeat, I guess. Absolutely. An experience that cannot be repeated. Here, the command, their immediate commanding officer saying, who, who is this Trudeau? He got in touch with his senior officer and suddenly the senior officer realized, oh man, that's the prime minister who's missing. <laughs> And then they all came running down and apologies. I said, he said, don't apologize. I had the time of my life. <laughs> I had the time of my life. And up in the hotel, it was like, you know, what's going to happen now? Heads will roll. Something will happen. Mm. Nothing. Nothing is to happen. These guys, I'm so happy that these guys are doing their job so effectively. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, from there, where did you go next? So from there, I became group executive chef. I started India's very first commissary kitchen for supplying pro everything processed to both the both the, all the three properties and uh, that gave me great experience i opened um, uh, the company's first ever wood fired oven bakery we made local breads uh, fermented by toddy which is where i get my surname from right so to clarify for your listeners toddy is the sap of the palm tree the palm tree has a jugular vein very much like the human jugular vein in right. which the juice goes into the fruit. So what they do is they gash the jugular vein and they attach a pot to it at night after sunset. And all night, the juice overflows into the pot. First thing in the morning, the toddy is a sweet, refreshing drink. As soon as sun comes up, the sugar starts to ferment and the toddy starts to get a little bit fermented. 
and if you drink it in the afternoon you're bound to walk woozy you know yeah you lose legs because the the yeast is already catching up inside right when somebody is really sick in india in some parts where toddy is common where my parental surname comes from because my forefathers were toddy businessmen they used to sell toddy and um, they would give you a hot toddy and the hot toddy was toddy boiled with uh, raw cane sugar garlic ginger some other herbs and spices feeling was if you had a bad chest pleurisy pneumonia etc you threw up violently at both ends of your vestibules <laughs> the whole idea is to empty your system out completely yeah. so you you wouldn't get off from the pot nor could you get out from keeping a bucket in front of you because all you did was just pour yourself out it's the most foul drinking thing in the world the reactions are so bad that the british decided to still call it hot toddy but they adopted whiskey hot wa- uh, whiskey with hot water and honey but the term remained hot toddy that's never where it came from that's i i never knew that okay so that stuck but the hot toddy to drink even though i had to make i was forced to drink it because i am a toddy wala yeah. my god i can never live it down again okay yeah so so having um, done all of that a friend of i what happened was we had a very bad problem with getting goat meat in goa at the time there was a huge problem there were drought in different regions there was no goat meat coming in and the hotel had to be looked after so someone told me there are shepherds right up in the deep hills of goa and if you go there between goa karnataka and maharashtra they will probably sell you some goats right so uh, but before this we did a very big event for i forget the name now but anyway for this big guy and um, i did a whole live village scene and in the village scene i brought some live pigs and some hens and other animals and then i said what do i do with these animals so i started a farm for the hotel i said great we'll have our own piggery and once we have a piggery we can supply pork to the hotels we can start doing our own hams etc and we have so much swill in the hotel from the staff dining room etc that we'll be able to feed the pigs yeah grew to 300 pigs eventually okay and uh, the greatest mistake i i made is i named some of the pigs after my staff who i thought looked like that <laughs> and, you know when you make a management faux pas that was the biggest faux pas i made yeah Mo- the kitchen staff stopped eating pork after that they stopped eating pork at that time because you're not going to kill one of our very own you know yeah but anyway so that piggery aside we also started a poultry farm and i got my experience of starting a poultry farm with 50000 birds in it and so my experience grew and uh, then we had the taj bought a huge property 600 acre piece of land to start becoming self sufficient on the orchard side so we had cashew plantations lots of pineapple tomatoes mangoes coconuts fabulous stuff like that and i got involved with the farm and i got more and more deeply entrenched with that and we started to do processing we set up a processing uh, plant for canning our own pineapple slices for the whole group and things like that we made our own booze from the cashew nut cashew fruit called feni and so all these experiences had come to me but once again sir study was being forgotten 
Right. You know? So anyway, uh, I went to this, uh, go into the mountains to look for these uh, shepherds. And in Goa, there is a particular stone, which is called the laterite stone, which you see in other some parts of Europe as well, I've seen. The laterite is a natural brick. You mine, you take it out of large quarries and then you shape the stone and then you leave it out to cure. And all the houses are made with those stones. And they had not covered up part of the quarry properly. And whilst I was going around a quarry, I slithered and fell inside the quarry. And I broke both my ankles. Oof. Now, I yeah, I'd driven about 70, 80 miles outside the hotel. There's nobody around me. It is, I'm in the deep forest now. Yeah. Just one person with me who could not drive the car. So I crawled myself out of the trolley <laughs> quarry. I hobbled, uh, hobbled and crawled to the car. And we got back and then I collapsed, of course, and I went straight into the hospital. And I was laid up with plaster on both my feet, both my legs. So I went to Bombay for getting my plasters done and I was lying at home. And this friend of ours who kept coming to Goa regularly was after me to help him. He was getting his, getting a new relocation from his restaurant in Pune. The old building was being demolished. They were building a brand new building and they offered him a beautiful new site. And he said, just come join me. This is enough, you know, you know, join me. In those eight weeks of lying at home, he got the better of us. And I, we said, okay, we'll join you. And so that's what, what happened. From Goa, I went to Pune to help uh, my friend. We op they opened the new restaurant called Touche the Sizzler. And the restaurant, sorry, the restaurant is called The Place. It was Touche because we specialize in Sizzlers. Right. The restaurant became extremely successful. It was rated one of Pune's finest, but problem was the partnership just wasn't working. Okay. Now go back to 1983. One of the other prime ministers was a gentleman called Bob Hawke of Australia. And Bob Hawke, like many of the others, had a stomach problem. And I looked after his diet. When he went back to Australia, and when you do all this work, you forget, you know, it's your part of your job. It's your duty. You don't do it for anything else. Yeah. It's your duty. And you're duty-bound to your country and to your establishment. But he wrote a lovely letter to me, thanking me for what we, you know, for looking after him. Mm -hmm. And then he said, I'd like to invite you to Australia to witness the Brisbane Expo as our guest. And please take this letter to the nearest high commission and they will grant you a visa. Yeah. When I asked my vice president, he point blank refused, say, you're not going anywhere. You just stay put here. He refused my holiday, refused to allow me to go for a vacation to Australia. Oh, wow. But the letter was lying at home. Yeah, they were like that. They were like that. They were very cruel, very crude at those days. Yeah. And like I said, you know, I was not the kind of guy who was appreciated, even though I was voted best executive chef in the country. Because other people really, outside of the Taj environment, enjoyed what I was doing and what I was creating and how I was looking after menus and my guests and my customers and everything else. Mm. So we decided that uh, we will leave. The Puna wasn't working very well. Pervin, my wife, who is, my, of course, my soulmate, my absolute pillar in everything we do. Yeah. She took that letter and sent it off to the Australian High Commission. And within six weeks, we got immigration into Australia. Really? So we said, okay, fine. Now go back to Bombay. And then from there... I was not very keen on Australia because I felt it was just too far away for me and too far away from my parents. And uh, so we said, we'll go for a holiday. Whatever money we have, we'll waste it. We'll go there, enjoy ourselves, come back. Yeah. So we borrowed some money, squandered whatever funds we had, went to Australia. 
stayed for a month and a half and came back. Before I, whilst I came back, my friend who used to be living and working for the Taj here in London wrote a letter to me. He says, you know, I heard you left the Pune as well. So what's your plan? I said, I have no plan. He called home in Bombay and spoke to me. I said, no plan. I mean, I'll do something. I'll say, lots of hotels want me. I've got open invitations from all the other hotel groups that want me to work for them. Mm. And the Taj desperately wanted me back. And they said, you come back on your terms. Whatever terms you demand, we will accept. And I said, no, I'm going to stick with this for some more time and see what happens. Right. He says, come to London, he says. I have an opportunity to run a small restaurant here and you and I can run it together. And we used to both manage chambers together. Okay. So yeah. we worked together very nicely. And his standards are very, very high too. So we said, okay, fine. I came to London on a tourist, I mean, came to London. Those days we didn't need, no, sorry, we did need tourist visas. I just came to have a look around, saw the place. Dingy, dirty, small, miserable, but I loved London because I had been here before a few times. And of course, in 1983, when I came pre-Chogam, and uh, I said, yes, okay, we'll come to London. And that's what happened. So in 1991, on the 2nd of August, Mr. and Mrs. Todiwala, with two tiny sons, walked into London. Wow. And then the rest is history, which is a, another big chapter in our lives. And a huge chapter in our lives. But then, of course, so we are here since 1991 now. Told mom and dad, who are aging, that I'll be back. Give me seven years at the most. Five to seven years, I'll come back to India. Never happened. Right. <laughs> Both of them are in heaven at the moment. And uh, that's it, really. Life changed completely. Yeah. One thing led to another, led to another, led to another. Namaste was the restaurant I came to work for. People who owned it, they called it Namaste. Namaste became one of the most successful restaurants in the shortest amount of time. But unfortunately, it was not to be because there were lots of issues over there. And during that time, somebody within home office didn't like who I was and wanted to desperately throw me out of Britain. Right. So for 10 solid years, we battled against trying to live in this country. And I had about six eviction notices that I wasn't skilled enough. I wasn't qualified enough to live in Britain. And I wasn't deserving enough to live in Britain. Wow. So those were the letters I had received from the home office. Yeah. Yeah. So we battled on. And then one of the conditions they threw at me because a lot of people from our customer base came to our aid in many a times. One of them was a gentleman called Mr. Roger Bramble, who was then, sorry, he is Roger Bramble, Sir Roger Bramble DL, like me, he's a deputy lieutenant, but retired now. He was Princess Diana's uncle. He's still alive. He lives in Goa and Britain. And Mr. Bramble one day said, you know, what's wrong? I said, I've got this problem. And he wrote off to the home office and said, you know, an artist can only teach. He cannot deliver his skills to other people. He can only guide, he can only show. And how dare you say this man is semi-skilled, whatever. So that created even more of a furor. But the thing that happened was they gave us an extension of my visa, which I had to renew every six months and then eventually every year. That was It was as bad as that because they wouldn't give us longer term. Right. Each time we renewed, cost us nearly 14,000 pounds a year to live in this country. Really? So we are and working. What, and what, we're in the nineties here as well. So that's um, so a lot of money yeah. because accountancy fees, lawyers' fees, solicitors' fees, all of that put together. We were really so poor at the time, and we were desperate to go see my family as well, or my mother, my mother-in-law, my parents. 
we you know we were desperate but anyway that's said and done they put a precondition that if i only if i expand the business and increase the manpower they will give me a year's visa from then on and so as luck would have it two gentlemen walked into the old restaurant one day now by the time that old restaurant we were running it pervin and i were running it and uh, these two gentlemen walked in had a lot of different kinds of food came back three times and then i got this phone call one day and the person called me and said you know my name is michael gottlieb do you know who i am i said i'll be afraid mr gottlieb i have no idea who you are he says i am the president of the restaurants association of great britain i said wow i didn't even know there was a restaurants association yeah. <laughs> so busy working here you know and trying to survive and you know fight this battle on one side and he says uh, do you have time to have a chat i said have a chat i said what's it regarding he says it's regarding i have a sort of a plan and uh, i said okay fair enough so he used to he was the man who founded smolenskis yeah on the brand and smolenskis balloon and we went to see them in their office and we were taken down in the basement where the office was and we made to sit over there for a few minutes and then out comes michael gottlieb and his partner martin jakes and pervin starts shouting hey i know you too you came to the restaurant three times first time you ate this second time you ate that and the third time you ate that wow great memory oh she can take your order back 20 years i can assure you that much and boom they suddenly their jaws dropped they had no idea that somebody would remember exactly what they ate and uh, so michael said that i have approached this gentleman called pat chapman now, pat chapman was the man who founded the curry club of england now pat chapman who come to india with groups of people and i used to do cookery demos for him in india teach them about goan food and when i was at chambers i did other food for them on the terrace of chambers etc so pat chapman uh, knew me when i was in this country when i came he voted me as the best indian chef in the uk at the time and uh, michael gottlieb approached pat chapman to ask him that he is looking for a chef and he had this brain wave of opening a chain of indian restaurants and uh, he was looking for a good chef and would pat know somebody yeah so pat told him you don't have to go to india the man you are looking for lives in this country he says you go and meet him and that's how they came to the restaurant and tried the food out three four times and then he says you know we want to do this 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 and i said wow gives me an opportunity to fulfill the demand of the home office yeah and we agreed even though at that time i had only 3% shares in cafe spice okay just 3% yeah because we have, we were penniless we had no money right but we took i had I, I looked on when i was uh, researching because i've started doing that now <laughs> researching yep. people who i'm uh, going to speak to on your wikipedia page it said something about the fact that you did you win a car in a competition ah okay so i'll go to that then that's before this okay so when we came to this country and uh, we were put up in a house which was owned by the owner of the old restaurant okay Yeah now he ran into lots of difficulties at the time of the recession and he kept on liquidating the company that owned the restaurant now that put me into a very precarious position with the home office because my work permit would expire if the business closed down right there were yeah there were 8 to 10 people working in the business at the time and they were also going to suffer so we i approached him and told him first i asked my wife pervin because at that time she was still at home looking after the kids as they were growing up and i asked her i said if you join me because she had worked in the taj before she trained to become a chef 
And then once she became a chef, unfortunately, she fell in love with the wrong man in her life. <laughs> and he changed the profession from kitchen to front of house. So then she was working front of house. But what happened was I said, if you join me, because I am bad, I'm dyslectic. Two and two is five. Okay, quite simple for me. <laughs> I need someone to look after that part of the business. And, you know, give the waiters some training on front of house, you know, training. And I'll look after the rest. And so she joined me. What happened was when the when I started to look off manage the restaurant on my own, I was told I have to vacate the house because I'm no longer working for that company and I cannot live there anymore. So we were suddenly overnight jobless, penniless, homeless. Right? Goodness. Yeah, and well, and in a, a, I suppose an unfamiliar part of the world at the same time, where your family network, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, was not on your door no 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 so we were we were completely into uh, this environment and uh, we had no credit rating we had nowhere to go nobody would give us anything and we had no money yeah there was a little so but he did extend it for a couple of months said okay as soon as you find a house you get out of my house and uh, there was a little house close by that had come up for sale but we could not get it on the crown estate because nobody knew us we had no money yeah but uh, the neighbors actually went and told the crown that, you know, you must give these people the house because they are very hardworking. They've been here for a couple of years. And so the crown agreed to sell the house to us. But now the problem was we had to put up 25% deposit. In those days, it was a very high amount for us. And others got it for 10 and 5%. But we had to pay 25 because we were, couldn't be trusted. Right. And um, we were going to see my cousin who lives in Wimbledon one day with the kids. And on in Merton, there is a shopping center that was called Arndale Shopping Center. And the little fellow needed a shirt and something else. So we went in there to Adam's Apparels. And the guy told me there, saying, sir, there is a prize draw. It's for a charity, you know, children's charity. And uh, can you buy a raffle ticket? I said, listen, I win nothing. But I'm actually got no money. I have to be very careful how we spend money. Oh, he says, you know, just anything will do. It's one pound a ticket. I had one pound in my pocket. I gave the one pound to him and I took one raffle ticket. First prize was a Renault Clio. And we came home. I mean, they threw the ticket in the drawer thinking, you know, it never happened. I'd never win anything anyway. And uh, we were going through this big problem for ourselves. And I was getting hammered on all sides. The home office on one side and an issue with the owner of the restaurant on the other side. And uh, totally down and out. So he brought the kids home from school in the afternoon. I used to come home and then go back to work. And Purvin went to our neighbor's house as she normally did with the kids because her kids were growing up as well at the same time. And I came back home. I said, I'll do a bit of gardening and then I'll go. And uh, the phone rang. And this gentleman called me. Is it Mr. Toddywala? I said, yes, I am. He said, you know, Mr. Toddywala, you, you are our first prize winner. And I abused him in our language because I thought it was one of our friends, you know, one of our Parsi friends, because I pull everybody's legs, everybody pulls my leg, okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I just thought, you know, somebody's pulling a leg, and I gave him a whole mouthful. He says, excuse me, I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> I said, you're not, you're not uh, this one. He says, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, no, I'm very serious. I said, listen, I said, I don't believe you. Can you call me back in a minute? He says, sure, I will. So he called me back. He says, where is that ticket you bought at Adam's Apparel? I said, okay, fine. I said, okay. So I went hunting for it and I found it in the drawer, thankfully. Yeah. And uh, I found the ticket and he says, can you read the number out to me? I read the number out to me. He says, you are the first prize winner of our draw and you win a brand new Renault Clio. 
And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I took his number down and ran straight to the neighbor. I said, Pervin, she's saying, don't bullshit, okay? <laughs> You're always pulling our leggings. It's not the right time to bullshit because you know how badly off we are. I said, no, I'm serious, you know? And then we called this guy up again. I said, what's the value of the car? He said, the boy, he said, 10 or 11,000 it was, you know, at the time. 10, 12,000, I don't remember. I needed 7,500 pounds to put down for my deposit. The rest we had already borrowed and kept ready. Right. I sold him that car for 7,500. Wow. Because that's all I wanted. I said, listen, I said, I'll do you a deal. If you transfer 7,500 pounds into my bank account, that car is yours. I'll sign it over to you. He says, give me two days. I'll sort it out. In two days, he sorted it out. We went to the solicitor and said, I've got the money. Can we sign on the house, please? And we got the house. Incredible. So we got into the house on floorboards, nothing inside. We lived on the floors for a few months. Every now and again, I spend uh, 50, 60 pounds and buy some cheap furniture from Argus, assemble it at night. And then we got the house going. And then we could afford to buy a bed. We afforded a bed. We bought some things. We got things done for the kids. We built a double-decker bed for them, and that's it. That's it. We got our first house. Yeah, I took you off your journey with that uh, with that little story. I was just fascinated to yeah. to, to learn uh, about whether, one one whether it was true because you never know if it uh, appears on Wikipedia. It doesn't make it true, but um, but anyway, you were. I think you said you had a three percent shareholding. Yeah, three percent on one share and two percent on some other share because. Uh, that's it. And then, of course, Cafe Spice Namaste opened its doors in November 1995. Right. And then, of course, it was groundbreaking at the time. It made history. It challenged the norms of Indian cuisine. It took away the flock wallpaper and carpeted floors, bright, colorful. And then from there it evolved. But what it did not do was not meet Michael Gottlieb's uh, dream of doing a chain. Because in that thing, he met the wrong chef. Because I would not do a second grade cuisine to suit a rollout concept. Sure. And so Cafe Spice Namaste, the rollout concept failed. But Cafe Spice Namaste got known for its food. Today it is the longest serving Michelin Beep Gurman restaurant in the guide. Yeah. Is it, is it still exactly the same site? In the same site, yeah. But now we are having a major challenge. We've got a brand new landlord who wants to throw us out. He's determined hell-bent to throw us out. He will not renew the lease now. The lease will come to an end at the end of this year. And we have a major battle on our hands. And again, no money. Right. Because all our money is exhausted. We paid everything off to our staff. And we are at the moment completely without any funds. So that's a new battle on our hands now. So new challenge, new chapter might open up. Who knows? Yeah. We are back to square one at the moment. Right. So I suppose going back to another part of your, your story, how did... TV work find you? Actually speaking, uh, I am bloody hopeless. You know, I, I have to say that. I am an idiot and I'm hopeless because in 1996, I did a very good program for UK Today. And UK Today wanted to showcase to the world what Britain is today with its multifaceted cuisines. Mm. And I was the first chef in the country, Indian chef in the country, actually got onto television. But I never, ever understood that I should take it more seriously. A lot of people approached me to do my PR. I didn't understand what PR was. They said, we'll do your PR and marketing. I'm an Indian. I was dumb. I didn't understand all that. I didn't know what PR and marketing was. Right. And I missed many opportunities. And then uh, we did quite a few recordings in the past. So I've done Master Chefs, Super Chefs. Uh, there were quite a lot of old programs that I have done over the years. I've forgotten. 
people ask me for my videos and they've never given back so i've lost so many of my recordings also i have been uh, actually on doing telework for various people from 1996 really yeah one thing I, my passion for cooking is deeper than just running around in front of a camera and putting my face on the screen perhaps i never pursued i never pursued that but i really do want to do that because i know i can give people a lot of knowledge a lot of uh, experience and a lot of myths i can distort and break in terms of indian cooking being difficult and you know long drawn and things like that and these days i'm putting posts on instagram which are getting very well received yeah for the short short videos and people are getting loads of ideas coming from there but yeah i missed many opportunities i i mean i know i am an idiot anyway i don't know how to make money for one okay <laughs> that's one of my biggest weaknesses i'm too generous i get too emotionally uh, caught up with different charities and different uh, you know initiatives and i'm totally involved in so many different things all the time so yeah money shall not be mine wealth will not be mine my wealth is in my friends and the people around me and my family and of course the staff that work for us yeah but i, I think that that's uh <clears throat> excuse me a, a, an understated wealth that that you know you definitely shouldn't come down on yourself too hard on on that side of things if you're an outwardly thinking and outwardly giving human being you know that's a it's a really positive trait to have i think i suppose so um maybe yeah. just doesn't help the pension um that's yeah. all doesn't, doesn't help my children to understand that why is their father always never there when he is so well known and he can make so much money and it's always through their childhood of course they if they wanted something we always had to come up with saying sorry we can't afford it yeah you know and that's always been the same story over and over again so yeah but in wealth terms yes if you dis- if you divide the term wealth into different things i am a very lucky man i mean i'm a lucky man in the sense that i have achieved quite a bit in terms of what i do for other people as well yeah i'm happy yeah well i mean that's that's massively important i have to say that the um, the incredible spice men uh, was a cracking series i had a lot of fun watching that it looked like you two were having a an absolute whale of a time so we had a whale of a time we had a ball not that i understand what tony says really half the time <laughs> so it's more of a laugh for me because he is so funny Yeah and uh, and we had a well of a time it's just a pity that the bbc never never did a second third fourth series because people just loved us and uh, people still tell us why don't you do a se- series it's not in our hands it's in the hands of the bbc you know they can easily uh, initiate another two three series because there's so much more we can offer but we shall be doing things together i think this year i finally roped him into doing charity dinners with me so we'll be doing fundraising dinners I told him just come in it's great fun you know we can you don't have to make money out of it but we'll make so many people happy yeah. by doing dinner so he said yes okay I'll join you so I do quite a few dinners every year now he's going to come on board and together we'll be raising money for some of the various causes that uh, I very firmly believe in yeah I actually um supposed to go to uh, a lunch that you were putting on in your uh, Canary Wharf site in I think it was March it is postponed to September yeah the hospitality network lunch that's the one yep yeah so i think uh, nikola is nikola is it nikola oh boy i'm bad at names i may not put my foot in there but yeah it's been, it's been scheduled for september so yes it will still happen yeah so i I'll, i'll definitely see you there for sure but um okay so i i suppose coming full circle 
one of the things that, I, that and one of the reasons why the, the I started this podcast was to try and I suppose raise the positive profile of of the industry in terms of what it does and and what it can achieve. Yeah. What would you say to somebody who was thinking about starting a career in hospitality? For anybody starting a career in hospital, all I will say is get your belt, your buckles, and your fasten seat belt on because you are in for the ride of your life. Yeah. You know, it is the ride of your life. I mean, there isn't a dull moment in our industry. You have to attack it with total 100% positivity. Do not be dampened by all the hurdles that come up in your life. There are several hurdles that will come up. You will feel yourself unwanted, maybe rejected, maybe dejected, maybe too hard to work. You know, we all put in the hard work in the past. We all put it in the hours, whatever it was, sacrificing, not being going out with friends, whatever it was. But you're in for the ride of your life. And funnily enough, you can never learn enough in this industry and you can never exhaust it. It's yeah. inexhaustive. So who knows? I mean, I was a busboy. Today, I am part of, you know, with my wife managing four establishments. Who knows where we will go? Yeah. We have our own range of products. I have done seven books. And uh, who knew all that would happen? Who understood that when you started off as a young guy walking in nervous, shivering, shaking, you know, getting kicked around the kitchen, but picking up, picking yeah. up, picking up. Always, my thing to young people always is keep that, keep your lips sealed, keep your eyes and ears open as much as you can. I made the mistakes of not keeping my lips sealed as well and got me into a lot of difficulties. But I have a lot of <laughs> stories to tell, which others may not have as many stories to tell. <laughs> okay, so I have a lot of stories to tell. But I wasn't the one that kept my lips shut. I mean, unfortunately, I got myself into a very bad situation. But on top of that, I mean, look at what we have achieved and look at what where we can go. And the world is still my platform, you know. Yeah. The world is your stage. And um, what I always tell young people, and they misunderstand what I'm saying, is if you have imagination. Now, this was coined by a very famous man called Dudley Stamp. Many, many, many years. He was, a, he was an English... Uh, geographer, you know, he was a, whatever you call them, you know, he was an explorer, geographer, whatever you call him. Dudley Stam made a comment that is stuck inside my brain, thanks to my English language teacher, Mr. Smith. Right. And he told me, if you have imagination, the whole world lies at your feet. And if you analyze that, it is true. The whole world is at your feet if you just have imagination. Yeah. And all you need is good imagination. You need a great heart, clean heart, a lot of uh, energy, and just attack everything with positivity. And I think for a young person, that's all he or she needs. You know, the industry today is at such a pedestal. It is at such a pedestal that they couldn't join a better profession in their lives. There isn't a better profession out there that allows you, someone like me, who hated education, and to grow and to explore and to aspire and to succeed. Yeah, I think I'd probably add to that is, and I think it's maybe underlying in the message that you, that you give is 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 be open to opportunity because it's there. Is there? It's um, it's everywhere, and if you're ready to take it, then you'll, as you say, who knows? You started life as a busboy. And you know you became a a, a very well known restaurateur, and 
you know, you've built something out of being open to opportunity, I think. Yes, but don't follow Cyrus Tadula's example because he didn't take all his opportunities. <laughs> you definitely took some though. You oh, definitely did. I took some. I took some. Maybe on default. Maybe on default. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, well, I mean, you, you mentioned challenge earlier on as well. I think we're, we're, we've never been in such a bigger challenge than, than faces us right now. And I definitely don't want that to be the, the underlying message of, of the podcast. But um, I think you've already alluded to the, the, the fact that you, you've got some challenges to face this year with uh, your landlord arrangement, etc. But I, I mean, through the other side of this uh, COVID-19 challenge that we have at the moment, what does the future hold for you in terms of what are your plans? So another old proverb says every cloud has a silver lining. Yeah. At the moment, we are shrouded in a cloud, but I'm sure new opportunities will come out of it. There will be a silver lining somewhere that we can expose and take our advantage to. I've always dreamt of having a small production unit. And uh, that's one of the two things that I've always dreamt of. And that is to be able to be in a position to elevate the levels of Asian cuisine in this country and be able to offer people, other restauranters, other catering operators, high-end, high-quality bulk base sauces, snacks, canapes, etc. to allow them to enhance their product. That's one. Number two is that we along, I mean, myself or two other restauranters and myself opened the first ever Asian and Oriental School of Catering in the year 2000 after convincing the government office for London to give us a grant. It was closed down because the government officers down the line had no understanding of hospitality as they don't even today. Yeah. And we failed because we depended on state funding to do what we did. But we still put 940 young people into full-time jobs and occupation. These were people that none of the schools in East London wanted. So my dream is to go back one day and have an Asian academy that can pick up a young person and make him job ready. Yep. Absolute job ready. And that I hope somebody comes up to me and says, here's five million pounds. Can you do something with it? And that's what I would do. I would invest in a state-of-the-art, fantastic college, bring the best talents from the world to teach young people and show them that there is more to Britain than meets the eye. And Britain is the foundation today where we can create the finest cuisines in the world in this tiny little country. Absolutely. And hope that comes to fruition one day. Yeah. Now that's a really uh, a really positive message and and perhaps is a, a good place to to wrap it up. Yes. You uh, if people want to get a hold of you to to chew I was going to say chew your brains but that's not the saying as it's chew chew the fat pick your brains. So what would be the best way for them to do that? Well they can get in touch uh, via email the best email to contact me on is assistant.cyrus at cafespice.co.uk. Excellent. Because I get hit by many emails every day. I hardly go through my inbox. So he screens the emails and sends them to me. And then I can look at a 50, 60, 100 emails. Otherwise, it's just too much for me to handle. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, no, I really appreciate your time. You jokingly said to me when we had a, a preamble uh, chat last week uh, ahead of this chat that um, that we would need 10 hours to cover the the stories i don't doubt that i th- i think you you're a walking story to be honest it's um really wonderful to 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 chat to you and please 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 do write that book i hope so yeah i hope so fantastic cyrus 
thank you very much for your time. You're welcome, sir. Thanks a lot. Good luck. Have a lovely day. You too. We'll see you soon. soon. All the best. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, what a privilege it was to chat to Cyrus and what a shining light he is for the industry. So many stories and you can feel what the industry means to him. A massive thank you to Cyrus for spending some time with us. If you're enjoying the show, please do leave us a five-star rating on whichever app you're listening. Don't forget to give us a like and a share and we'll see you next time.